Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What are bank earnings telling us? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, April 14, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Brent Donnelly, president of Spectra Markets. The second half of this show is just for Real Vision members. So if you don't want to miss it, you can sign up by using the link in the description or scan the QR code on the screen. Let's jump right in to today's market analysis. Uh, I started the show with a question, Brent. What are bank earnings telling us? Are they telling us, damn, it feels good to be a GSIB? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is the it's the big banks, right? So it's not really telling us all that much. Although if you were short looking for some kind of systemic banking crisis, then this isn't what you were looking for. So, you know, there is some relief. Obviously, it helped equities a little bit. Um, and I, it's meaningful at the margin. But what really matters is what's going on with the regionals. And that's a much slower moving story, which is lending contraction. And it's not like an explosive story the way that maybe equity bears wish it was. Well, you know, this is an interesting point, And you make a lot of these subtle distinction here between the GCIVs and what's happening in regional banks. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that we may still have uh, something of a, of, a, of, a, of a slow motion crisis waiting out there. But I want to cover just some breaking news here. Uh, and this is directly uh, from a great uh, Wall Street Journal piece uh, on the three banks reporting today. They actually went with a similar lead to what I said. It's great to be a mega bank, even in a mm-hmm. banking crisis. Here's what's happening. JP Morgan up on the day, 7.5%. Significant move up for JP Morgan on this news, uh, reporting a 52% increase in first quarter profit and record revenue. Uh, some other interesting stuff coming out of JP Morgan. They picked up about 50 billion in new deposits following March's bank failure. Uh, let's also take a look at what's happening with City up 5% on the day and Wells Fargo, uh, call it basically flat, fractionally down on the day. Uh, but all of these banks obviously getting something of a significant tailwind. Uh, they're charging higher rates. These are net interest margins, so-called NIMS, uh, while paying depositors basically similar rates. Pretty good model. Nice work if you can get it. And I would say seven and a half percent in JPM. That's real money. That's a you know, it's a major market cap change. Yeah, it's 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 absolutely massive. Uh, let's see if we can get the the market cap for JP Morgan here in just a second. Uh, Three hundred and seventy nine billion dollar market cap over at JPM. So, Brent, give us a little broader context here on what you see happening in these markets. Sure. So broadly, I think people got spooked on the Silvergate stuff, um, really started positioning for something pretty severe on the lending side. And what we're really seeing, we've got a lot of data in the last two weeks. What we're really seeing is something much more gradual. So it is kind of like a negative economic backdrop that's starting to form, but it's not like super black clouds and thunderstorms. It's more like you look over on the horizon, you see some clouds coming in. So then in contrast, if you look at positioning and sentiment, people have been quite bare stocks. And so the news isn't, isn't delivering on, on the thesis really, like that things, that the shit was gonna hit the fan. It, it's maybe things are getting worse for sure, but it's kind of gradual. And then 
what it kind of looks like is a bit of disinflation at the same time, especially on the good side. Uh, PPI is negative in some countries now. So it's just not that bad. You know what I mean? So we've we've been oscillating from recession, hard landing, soft landing, no landing. Um, and I people don't really like to talk about the soft landing option because, you know, people don't like the Fed and people don't expect it, expect something good to happen generally. But I mean, it's still possible, right? And I think that's one of the scenarios that the market has to consider. And it's not many people are positioned for that. Well, let's talk about exactly that. I'm so glad you bring it up and you're right. It does seem to be a minority view. Let's talk about what the case might look like for a soft landing. How might that be engineered? What are the probabilities? And what would the impact be around that scenario? Sure, I mean, it's tough because they're trying to thread a needle with still high inflation. Um, and, you know, earnings expectations are still relatively high from the analyst side. But at the same time, you know, in, if you look at, say, 1995, that's kind of what happened, right? The Fed ripped rates higher. People got nervous. A couple things broke. And then somehow we skated through. I think it's much more difficult now because um, debt is just so much higher everywhere. Like government debt obviously sovereign debt but then also if you look outside of the u.s consumer debt's very high in, in many countries like canada but then you do have the china reopening maybe helping at the margin that creates some global demand europe looks okay not terrible um they've been able to hike rates up to here without killing italy and destroying the the btp market so you know if if fertilizer prices are falling and foods food prices are falling shipping costs are falling all that stuff is kind of a little bit of reason for optimism. And then I would say also, if you think about just like the conversations you're having lately with just friends or whatever, I don't feel like that psycho that psychological angst is as like as much of a thing now in terms of inflation. Like people aren't bitching about menu prices and and like how their coffee went up and all that kind of stuff these days. I think we've kind of settled into like a new higher level of prices. But then if the rate of increase slows a bit and the Fed can stop hiking, now there's like, I've just said the word if about 10 times here, right? So that's the question is, it, it's like this immaculate disinflation scenario is very tough. It's like Sully Sullenberger trying to land a plane on the Hudson River or whatever. Like, is it possible? Sure, I mean, he did it, but can Powell do it? Uh, you know, but uh, but it, nobody's positioned for it. So it's kind of the pain trade and that's what's happening. Well, that's let's happening. talk. That's so well said. Let's talk about exactly that uh, and define a little bit of the parameters and the characteristics of what a soft landing would look like. Sure. I mean, but let's let's just walk through some of the basic points here. I mean, the challenge right now, the challenge the Fed always has is trying to simultaneously balance the two prongs of its dual mandate, uh, maximal uh, employment and stable prices. Uh, but the challenge here is that you have problems on both sides of it. Right now, CPI print uh, for uh, for the month of March came in. It's been moderating, but it's still 5%. That's two and a half times higher than their target. Uh, I know Fed uses PCE, uh, personal consumption expenditures, rather than CPI, consumer price index, but it's a pretty good index of what's happening in the economy yeah. um, more generally. Simultaneously, on the other side of this kind of balance of terror that central banks always need to navigate uh, is the risk of recession. It now sounds like, based on the comments that we're getting from the Fed, uh, from the minutes, from the commentary, and from the speeches, uh, that there's basically a mild recession risk 
being baked in by the Fed. How do they balance these two things? I mean, typically the idea uh, is that you have a, a brake and a gas pedal. If you want to think about this in the simplest mm -hmm. possible metaphor, you can't press them both at the same time. We're going too fast and yet we're going too slow. This is a real material challenge. How do central bankers deal with this? What are the implications for markets? Well, the hardest thing really is that the long and variable lags take a while to kick in. So they've hiked a lot, right? I mean, they went from whatever, zero to five-ish. So now everyone's kind of waiting to see what happens, right? Because if you think about the lags are between six and 18 months, we're kind of like in the heart of that. And that's when usually things start to break. So now it's almost like, you already slammed on the brakes and now you're just waiting to see as it's you start skidding on the wet pavement are you going to slam into the car in front of you or are you going to like kind of go ding in, into the fender or are you going to stop in time and like they don't know i mean that's why if you look at like goolsby he's saying the credit tightening is like 25 to 75 basis points of hikes uh like the equivalent of that whereas if you listen to waller he's just saying kind of like what you said listen inflation's high unemployment's low what are we doing here? We got to hike. Um, but the problem is that it's not instantaneous. So that's why there's a really wide range of opinions on what can happen in the economy. And then also e even inside the Fed, like what should the Fed be doing? We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, you used a phrase, uh, a term of art at the beginning of your answers uh, there long and variable lags. This is uh, this is something that we hear from the Fed. Uh, and I guess in, in layman's terms, uh, it basically means, you know, there there are these delays between mm. policy action and policy results. Another way of sort of framing that specific long and variable lags a little bit more broadly uh, is sometimes when you hear these folks, uh, central bankers around the world talk about the policy actions that they have, their policy toolkit, uh, it sounds like they're able to very finely turn the dials on the economy. Uh, there are lots of folks, particularly on the Austrian side uh, of the economic spectrum, who believes this is who believe this is something of a fantasy uh, mm. that central banks can sort of minutely sort of micromanage the money supply, micromanage monetary policy to achieve optimal results. Uh, it's not easy. Well, I think a really important thing that everyone needs to remember is that it's not a science, right? So <laughs> economics is not a science and like they can pretend as much as they want. They got 600 PhDs there writing papers with complex formulas and stuff. It's just not a science. Nobody knows. So they're kind of like walking through the darkness, trying to figure out what, what each thing that they do, like what the result is of each action that they take. And then they bump into some furniture and, you know, they have to kind of try and figure it out. So I think they tend to speak with more confidence than is justified because, you know, the, the lags are so long, but then also, like you suggested from the Austrian side, you don't even really know what all the relationships are. And so like a lot of the inflation that we got was probably just related to fiscal. So, um, and then shortages of workers and there's still a lot of, there's still a shortage of unskilled workers. So, you know, hiking rates isn't going to do anything to that immediately, but then over time it will because as rates go up, people's behaviors change. So even like the deposit flight thing, really until we got to four or 5%, everyone's like, yeah, I'll just take zero in my savings. I don't care. But I mean, at 4%, then you look at your quarterly statement and you go, okay, yeah, you know what? This is stupid. I'm going to move into money market funds. So over time, people's behavior will change. And then like in Canada, I say mortgage, mortgages will reset over time. And so everything that happens on the, on the rate side takes months or sometimes years to flow through to the real economy. And 
like nobody knows all the mechanisms. It's just overly, it's just wildly complex. Yeah, extremely complex. I remember about 10 years ago, I was reading a white paper from the Fed and I found uh, embedded in one of the formulas, a third derivative. And I remember thinking to myself, well, two things. Number one, I'm probably not smart enough to be reading this paper. Uh, but number two, when you're getting to third order differentiation in calculus, yeah. really, does that really describe the way the real world functions? Or is it just, you know, overly engineered and beyond the capacity of any human being uh, to understand or model? Right. I mean, that's the thing, right, is that it's so complex that sure, there are third and fourth derivative things going on in relationships, but you can't extract them because right. every cycle is different. The starting points matter so much, like starting from zero rates and going to five is completely different from going like four to eight or whatever, because the whole economy was kind of structured for zero rates over the last 10 years. And we had like the secular stagnation and everything. So you know, there's sort of like a joke about saying this time is different, but every time is different. <laughs> yes, that is, that is so true. Uh, listen, while we're talking about this, I wanted to take a look at a conversation uh, Andreas Steno Larson had on Real Vision, uh, the latest in bank lending trends. Uh, this is an Andreas Steno Larson show on Real Vision, aired 413, four days ago. Let's take a look at that because he touches on many of the same points that we are discussing right mm -hmm. now monetary policy is to blame for this deposit crisis. And I think it is vastly overlooked that the inverted yield curve and the destruction of dollar liquidity via the quantitative tightening program is the underlying root cause uh, for this deposit flight or this deposit crisis. Let's assume that um, bank credit overall contracts. Um, clearly, when bank lending contracts, there will be a smaller amount of deposits available in the banking system as well. So that is what you show, uh, I'll see on the chart here, the amount of broad dollars available to the financial system, the M2 measure has declined year over year in tandem with the decline in deposits in commercial banks. And this factor is much more important than the factor um, I showed you just earlier with people moving money from deposits to money market funds. This is probably say five to six times more important than the move towards money market funds, because this is an actual destruction of US dollars occurring due to monetary policy. And I simply doubt that it is possible to continue to destroy US dollars on an ongoing basis from here, uh, unless the Fed truly wants to break things. Two points stuck out to me about uh, that comment from Andreas Stano Larson. Uh, the first is that monetary policy is to blame for the deposit crisis. And then he ends with this note, quote, and I simply doubt that it is possible to continue to destroy U.S. dollars on an ongoing basis from here unless the Fed truly wants to break things. I guess two sides of the same coin. Ultimate point here being uh, that the Fed will continue to, you know, increase rates. This is a story we've heard many times before, increase uh, tightening policy actions until something breaks. Well, Something broke. We saw it with the regional banks. Risk of more stuff breaking in the future. Brent, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think by definition, that's that's kind of like they're not really trying to do that, but they understand that that's what's going to happen. Um, people often talk about the inverted yield curve as a predictor of recession because it has an excellent uh, track record. I think it's eight for eight in the last eight recessions. But to me, I think it's also a cause. And that's kind of what Stenos is kind of pointing to there is that when the yield curve is inverted, a lot of behaviors change, including like how banks are incentivized. 
and it sucks money out of the system, like he said. And so to me, that that's part of what the Fed is doing and they're doing it on purpose, but like their intent's not really to break something. It's just like, that's the collateral damage of right. trying to engineer and, and central plan a little bit um, is that that's what's gonna happen on the side. Well, the intent is never to break something. It just always seems to happen eventually. Sure. Uh, take a significant enough policy action. Well, and also they don't really, like I said, that nobody knows like the parameters of what exactly they're trying to get to because no one knows where our star and the neutral rate is really. Um, and it seems to be pro-cyclical as well. So the stuff breaking is kind of like the evidence that, okay, we're probably in restrictive territory now and we're probably getting close to tightening enough. And so it ends up being like, kind of looks like they're trying to break stuff, but they're not really, it's just that when stuff starts breaking, that's a signal or that's information, right? That, okay, things are tight enough now that, that we're changing behaviors in the real economy and, or in the financial economy. And then those will go into, um, into the real economy. Yeah. Via various transmission mechanisms, by the way, there are many different ways we can take a look uh, at that inversion, but I'm just looking at two's 10 spread, uh, right now on my screen and it's almost 60 basis points, pretty considerably inverted negative minus 58 basis points right now yeah i mean if you look at three month tenure it's pretty epic <laughs> that chart is epic yeah uh, so let's talk a little bit about what's happening in terms of s p positioning i know this is something that you and i were talking about a little bit mm -hmm. offline you got some charts on this one brent sure yeah so the first chart just shows um positioning in s p futures from non-commercials which is speculators basically and if you um, look at where it is now, essentially, it's that's about as short as as it ever gets. And what that is consistent with is people thinking that a crisis is coming, something systemic um, is happening. That one, yep. So you can see it's at the lows. Then if you bring up the other chart with the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven on it, that shows you, that's just S&Ps with any time that positioning was in the, the 95th percentile short. So it's a, maybe a little hard to see, but the, the gist of it is that pretty much every time we rallied, other than eventually, obviously, 08 happened, but you know, S&Ps were pretty much max short from like 06, 07, and then 08, it obviously paid off really well. Those other blue lines are like the Eurozone crisis, China deval, and COVID, which were all like terrible times to be short. So like, I don't, I don't like to just use positioning in isolation, but then April's the best month seasonally for stocks. So you have like a lot of kind of like technical, more microstructure things that are not in your favor if you're short right now. Um, and essentially what you're cheering for if you're short is a crisis, like a systemic thing that, that rips through the system quickly because that's generally what you need when positioning is this extreme so let's actually talk about that essentially what you're saying is uh what the shorts are waiting for right now is some event to rip everyone's face off is there something that you see that looks like that on the horizon which obviously would be bad news for the u.s economy bad news for markets more broadly uh, but good for those who are short positioned on s p well if you think about like how the s p reacts to economic data think of a kind of like a smile. So like on the left is very strong data is bad for stocks generally or whichever side. And on the right is very weak data is also bad for stocks, but the stuff in the middle kind of keeps the fed chilling out a little tiny bit. And that's what we've been getting. So I think the other thing besides a systemic uh, problem, say from the regionals would just be like a very 
rapid decline in the economic data like ism and all that stuff just keeps on cratering and it has been going down um and then you could get something like 2001 where it's just like a long bear market where the fed's cutting but it doesn't matter because the economy's just really really weak um but we just haven't seen evidence of that like the labor market stuff's rolling over but it's not horrendous like the just not, nothing is really pointing to initial extreme weakness in the economic data via lending clamping up. So lending is contracting and that matters, but it's just not like a super hardcore, really fast decline in the data. And so when we're in the middle like this, it's just hard work being short stocks. Let me ask you this. Uh, so obviously uh, JP Morgan earnings out today, a call from Jamie Dimon and the executive team over at JPM. CNBC just posted this story. There's some comments here from JP Morgan. I was wondering if we could read these uh, and get your comments and thoughts about this. Uh, this is from CNBC. Investors and businesses should plan for interest rates to remain higher for longer than currently expected by the market, according to JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon. Quote, if and when that happens, it will undress problems in the economy for those who are exposed to floating rates, Dimon said. Uh, Diamond said he told all his bank clients to prepare for the risks of higher rates and that it's possible that smaller banks, that more smaller banks could fail. So exactly the point that we've been making here, Jamie Diamond, making on the JPM earnings call earlier today. Thoughts about that? Thoughts about those comments? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I think most people are in the same camp that the, the cuts that are priced in uh, for the Fed, I mean, starting in June or July, are very aggressive. But the funny thing is like not very many people believe that market pricing it's more like if they cut they're going to cut a lot so you know say it looks like 25 basis points is expected really it's like a 25 percent chance of 100 basis points like if they cut they're going to be mass they, they could be massive cuts because then there's probably a systemic situation or something so i think really consensus is that rates will probably stay around here um i don't think a lot of people are calling for really imminent rate cuts but it's true. I mean, the longer rates stay high, the more pain is going to kind of ripple through the system. And um, so, I, I mean, the point's definitely valid. It's just that I, I think that's kind of like what most people expect, even though market pricing kind of suggests something a little bit different from that. Talking about differences between what market pricing suggests uh, and what is being said by certain individuals, John Williams, uh, president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, uh, out earlier this week saying that he thinks one more rate hike uh, essentially would be appropriate based on his view uh, of what's happening. Obviously, all the market-based indicators indicating that investors believe the opposite is going to happen, that the Fed is going to begin to pivot toward cuts. Talk a little bit about that disconnect. Well, there, there's actually 70% chance of a hike priced in for May. So it's like the craziest curve ever. It's like a hike right. and then a cut basically like immediately um and like i said i don't know i find that hard to believe but maybe they do go into may as like okay this is like a final sort of like bone toss to the inflation people and then they they calm down but we've been thinking that for ages right like it keeps think we keep thinking that they're done and then they're never done so um i i feel like unless we see real evidence of labor market slowdown which we're kind of maybe getting at the margin but not enough then um yeah, I mean the 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 cuts look in, look kind of insane, but it's always more probabilistic where like there's there is a tiny chance of something really bad happening, 
And so that has to be in there as like a risk premium in the rate side. Let me add a little bit of color and context from uh, Mr. Williams' comments directly, uh, talking about an additional interest rate hike this year. He says uh, it is, quote, a reasonable place to start, excuse me, a reasonable starting place, a reasonable starting place. And then he goes on to say, we need to do what we need to do in order to make sure we bring inflation down. We've seen the data coming come in consistently strong. Obviously, PPI off a little bit of peak. Most people think inflation uh, off-peak increases and beginning to decelerate, but still uh, on a regular basis coming in ahead of where the Fed is targeting two and a half times uh, by some metrics. Yeah, I mean, Waller was similar today too, and Waller and Williams are both pretty credible. So to me, that's like, that's the path that they're trying to stay on. And then it's just like whether they get knocked off and Silvergate looked like that moment. And obviously we saw like a massive explosion in the in the rates market. Um, but now things have calmed down and they're trying to stick to the message as long as possible. And, you know, there'll be a point where they can't stick with it anymore. But uh, I, I think the Waller, the Waller speech today was was important too. Actually, if you bring up the chart of uh, two-year yields, um, you can see the data this week was like on the soft side most of the week. And you can see that's that's an hourly chart just showing this week. So you can see like their CPI yields came off, but then this morning, I think people were leaning very much for weak retail sales and it was kind of mixed. And then Waller spoke and he was quite hawkish. So it's an interesting week from that point of view in that you got some kind of weakish data overall, um, but yet yields finished the week higher. And uh, that's not super great if, if you're, you know, if you're bullish bonds, um, you know, that's not not what you were looking for. Let me zoom the camera out and ask a bigger picture question about this, a, a kind of meta point about everything we're talking about. You know, we have these conversations on Real Vision all the time. Sometimes it feels like we're medieval priests interpreting uh, papal cyclicals and church doctrine. Is this the way economies are supposed to function uh, by, you know, looking at a chart and saying, well, Mr. Waller speaks here and you see two-year yields rise there. I mean, is that a healthy way for an economy to function? I mean, I don't think so. I've written about this before. I, I think the Fed communication is is way, way, way too much. Um, it's just gotten to the point where each governor and each member is speaking all the time. The non-voters are speaking. They're saying different things. Maybe in a world of of a crisis where you need forward guidance and you're trying to like pin yields in the back end down because you can't cut anymore or something. But I don't know. I feel like it's just like this cacophonous noise that is not useful. I personally don't think it's useful. I think they're over communicating like crazy and and it it there's just no point to it. You know, those of us who have a few gray hairs remember the days of Alan Greenspan, mm. uh, where the only communication you got from the Fed was the thickness of his briefcase yeah. uh, that he carried. And CNBC used to set up telephoto lenses to catch him carrying his briefcase uh, down to go and temp testify uh, at what was then called the Humphrey Hawkins testimony uh, on, on the Hill. How far we have come yeah, and he used to joke about like if you understand what I'm saying, then you're not understanding properly what I'm saying. So, you know, right. they were trying to be initial like intentionally vague to to give themselves latitude. And now I don't know. To me, it feels like central planning or just like I don't know. I don't know really what the motivation is at this point for so many speeches and so much communication. To me, it just feels like wildly unnecessary. I mean, you do have to wonder, even for people uh, who are not Fed skeptics and Fed critics, uh, about the nature of an economy that has taken on. Uh, I mean, if you just go and look at the the size of the Fed balance sheet and compare it uh, to the overall GDP of the U.S., it's just a massive proportion. Mm, yeah, and I mean, 
if you see if you think about all the fiscal stuff that happened as well um it does feel like market forces just got kind of like blown out of the water there for a couple of years and now the market's trying to find its equilibrium again so like 2021 we had the bubble and everything because there was just so much money being firehosed all over the place and now they're trying to take back the money and yeah it to me it feels like there's a lot of issues with market pricing and you know interest rates not necessarily finding their natural level and, and things like that but you know all you can do is play the game and as as it sits before you and play the hand of that, that you've been dealt so i try not to get too bogged down in these like sort of more philosophical things just because it tends to be like turn into complaining about markets or bs or this and that but in the end our job is just right. to like try and make money yeah I, I mean at the end of the day uh it's uh it's like complaining about the weather it is what it is and you've just got to adjust to the current situation by the way yeah exactly some- some live TV back in the envelope, head math, W-A-L-C-L. This is total assets, less eliminations from consolidations on the St. Louis Fed Fred database. $8.1 trillion right now, the balance sheet. U.S. A GDP, about $26 trillion. So back in the envelope, it's about 30%. Yeah, I mean, the numbers are getting so big now that, it, I mean, human beings can't even understand what they mean. So, that, I mean, the next time there's a recession or something scary happens, what, they're going to be $20 trillion? Like, it, it is kind of mind-numbing at this point the the size of the numbers especially when you dig into how big a trillion actually is <laughs> yeah and it's it's one it's one of the reasons why i think it's important to look at these uh, as ratios because people get 30 percent 30 percent of yeah. us gdp currently held on the balance sheet of the federal reserve yeah i mean it's a it's a really sort of striking embracing moment when you think about that and understand uh the magnitude of that change yeah i think essentially what's happened is that mmt kind of became almost orthodox right for a bit and so the combination of fiscal and monetary extreme like extreme policy kind of became like oh it doesn't matter and the the politicians don't care about deficits no one ever asked like remember back in the day people would say who's how are we going to pay for it now that's not even a question you just announced the stimulus and who cares who cares how we pay for it so i guess the answer to how how we pay for it is it's monetized by the fed yeah 10, 10, 10 to the 12, uh, a one followed by 12 zeros, a million millions. Before you know it, it starts to add up to some real money, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's almost real money at this point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, I wanted to tell everyone who's watching right now, uh, this has been the first half of the show that we've been doing uh, live on YouTube. We're about to transition uh, to go behind on the Real Vision website for the second half of the show uh, to talk a little bit more and in more detail about some of these points that we've been discussing here. So if you don't want to miss it, you can sign up by using the link in the description or scan the QR code on the screen. Uh, and we're going to continue to jump into more analysis right now. Thanks for joining us, everyone who is watching on YouTube. And please continue to join us on the Real Vision website. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Okay, Brent, lots to talk about. Uh, Let's talk about some of the research that you've been doing here. Uh, We're going to walk through some of that. Give us big picture uh, context on the deep dive that you've been doing on these markets. So um, what do you want to talk about first, the FX or the dollar? Is Is that what you want to talk about first or where do you want to go? Yeah, let's do FX and the dollar. Sure. So people have been much more sympathetic to the weak dollar trade lately. Um, 
And it's been kind of working, kind of not. Like people were trying to do China reopening and buy Australian dollars and things like that, which haven't really worked. But overall, um, when you have a period of US slowing down and the rest of the world is not disastrous, which is where we are right now, generally that's like a sell dollars regime. And so that has been working and I, that's kind of really the main vibe right now is kind of like this, it's not a hysteria or anything, but just kind of like this slow kind of feeling that the dollar is gonna decline, maybe like nothing major, maybe 5%, 7% more from here. And I, to me, that makes sense. Like, unless we see something very dramatic um, in terms of like the economic data just starts picking up out of nowhere, which is possible, um, then I think we're kind of in a textbook dollar down environment here with China reopening, Europe's fine-ish, and US slowing. Um, to me, that's like a textbook dollar down environment. So people were making money this week until today, the dollar ripped because of Waller. So. <laughs> that that two-year yield chart, um, it, it looks kind of like a chart of the dollar where um, it, a little bit more of a decline throughout the week in the dollar and then bang, you know, kind of a, a little mini correction today. I don't know if we have uh, that dollar chart, but if we don't, we could pull back up the uh, Waller chart and take a look at that one more time. Yeah, I don't know if I sent you guys uh, the dollar chart, but it, it, it's it's similar, except if you instead of kind of being flat after CPI, it was more of a downtrend in the dollar and then like a severe chunk higher today. Uh, so let's go through the logic of that, uh, particularly in relation to Mr. Waller's comments, why you saw, why you expect, uh, why you believe that occurred. So generally like the, the very basic framework in FX is generally countries with higher yields attract money. So that's why dollar yen, for example, went from like 105 to 150 last year because US was hiking and Japan was pegging yields. And so that yield differential got so big that it's really attractive to, to own dollars and not yen. So Japanese people, Japanese investors, for example, will then flood into the dollar. And then if yields are coming off, generally it's just like it's less attractive to be in that currency. So that's why, for example, Aussie, uh, the Australian dollar has been very weak relative to what you would expect um, because the reserve bank there is just like crazy loose, like real rates in Australia are negative 3% or something. So uh, generally that's like the very basic framework that FX runs on. And then there's a lot of exceptions and different things, but um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of been the framework for a while. And then if you look at, um, the other side of the, the coin would be if there's a crisis, then people just buy dollars. So that's like a whole different framework, but we're not in that right now. Well, that's exactly what you were talking about earlier with the hypothesis of the smile, uh, the so-called dollar smile, mm. uh, where you see uh, sort of risk on both sides of the equation, increasing dollar strength. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So when, um, when the U.S. is kicking ass, dollar goes up. And when the world is scared, the dollar goes up because dollar is still the safe haven. So... And then when it's kind of like in the middle, like Goldilocks or or stumbling stumbling through kind of thing, that's when generally that's like the textbook dollar sell um, environment. Now, the only thing is that U.S. yields are still pretty high, so it's expensive to be short dollars for a prolonged period. So then you'll get corrections like today where people just get annoyed and and buy all the buy all their positions back. And especially on a Friday, you see that quite often. Explain that uh, proposition about the high cost to be short dollars. Um, so generally, if you are short a currency, you have to pay the interest differential uh, versus the currency that you're long. So if you're short dollars and long yen, 
and the difference is 4%, then that's what you, you have to pay that interest, that, that interest rate differential. And like, obviously it doesn't matter on any given day that that 4% divided by 250 trading days is nothing. But if you're sitting there short dollars for short dollar yen for three months, then, you know, it starts to bleed. It's like, it's kind of like being long an option where, you know, it, you see your PL, it's never like a huge amount of money, but it's just drip, 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 drip. Um, and so generally if like everything else was equal, people would rather be long currencies that are higher yielding because it's just, you know, it gives you a little margin of safety that, that not a huge one, but it gives you something to work with. So currencies like Brazil, where rates are much higher, are attractive just for that reason, um, because you can just sit on it and try to use some leverage, and and that's the called the carry trade, as you know. Yeah, very well said. Uh, listen, while we were talking there, I was able to screenshot a copy of the uh, U.S. dollar index uh, chart. Let's take a look at that. This is DX. Oh, nice, nice multitasking. <laughs> Uh, so that you can see that right there, Brent. Any comments you'd like to add? Yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of been like we were in a raging dollar bull environment for a long time with the European energy crisis and all that. And so a big part of like the dollar sell off recently has just been kind of mean reversion and getting away from like, okay, Europe's not like shutting down for the winter. Things are going to be all right over there. Um, oil also kind of calmed down and nat gas and, you know, UK electricity, all that stuff calmed down. So a big part of the dollar selling really like for the last couple of months was a lot of mean reversion. And so now you kind of have to guess or or predict what's the data going to do. And if it's kind of in the middle, um, if the U.S. data is in the middle, like it like it has been, then that's an OK time to still sit, still stay short dollars. Right, let's get back to uh, your chart pack. Walk us through uh, what else you've got here that you want to go through. Sure. Uh, just one thing I think is this kind of like a non sequitur to can compared to what we're talking about, but that there's a housing chart in there. And I think it's useful just to sometimes look at the at the index instead of the year over year. So that's US housing prices. Um, so like, I think if you asked the average person on the street, they would probably think that like US housing is not doing very well. And it's kind of maybe crapping out. But the reality is that like volumes have decreased a lot, um, but prices have not. And it's the same thing in Canada. Uh, some countries have seen bigger declines, but I think it's just useful to know that, I mean, U.S. housing is basically this, the same price as it was a year ago. So it went up a bit. Uh, sorry, it went up a lot and down a tiny bit. And so I just feel like sometimes that that is a useful perspective instead of looking at year over year. Um, and I, I think that's part of why, like, this whole scenario in the U.S. is very difficult because there's so many moving pieces and we're coming from such a weird starting point where everyone had so much money and work from home happened. And then you got, like, Tech people are getting laid off, but unskilled workers, there's still a massive shortage. And then on the inflation side, like goods prices have gone down a lot, but services prices are still sticky. So a lot of the things in a normal economy, you're mostly looking at demand. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of things that have mattered this time have been more supply side, right? So that's created this weird bifurcation where you hear all these tech layoffs and you think, whoa, boy, like the labor market's bad. But then construction at this point in the cycle is usually you know, shedding jobs like crazy, but it hasn't been at all because all it's doing is like there, there was a massive shortage and now there's less of a shortage. Um, I mean, if you walk around my town, every single restaurant's still looking for people. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, that chart that we just brought up, I couldn't quite see the title of that. Was that S&P CoreLogic, Case Shiller, Metro Area, all 
Yeah, I think that's what it is. I, if I remember correctly, it's definitely Case Schiller. There's two of them, and I can't remember which one I picked, but they're similar. Yeah, it's 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 U.S. home price index. Um, I think it's index 200 back in '88 or something. Something like that. Let's bring that chart up one more time because I wanted to point something out that is interesting. Uh, what we're talking about here is that little rollover to the downside uh, that we've seen in the upper right-hand corner of that chart. But I want to focus on the obvious here for a second. You see that hump directly in the center of your screen. That's the, the so-called 2007 housing bubble. Uh, and look at what's happened to that chart since. I mean, obviously, you know, a, a material increase, and you can see the, the sort of the, the extreme left-hand side of that chart, you can start to see the second derivative begin to increase uh, as that number starts to roll up, looking more like an exponential curve. But boy, what we've seen happen since that crash, that's monetary policy. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at other countries like Canada, actually never even dipped in, in 2008. It's crazy. It just flatlined for like two years and then kept on going up. And there were like articles in magazines about the housing bubble in Canada in 2013. And, you know, it's just literally a straight line up. It's it's dipped now like the U.S. But um, yeah, I think the the amount of asset price inflation that we've seen is, I mean, if you stepped back to 19... 98 or something, it would just be totally incomprehensible. Like not one person would believe that this could have happened in, in the amount that asset prices have gone up. And really that's the product of QE, right? I think the empirical evidence now shows us that QE doesn't create consumer price inflation, it creates asset price inflation. And then if you throw fiscal on the fire, then you get, then you get CPI going to the moon. Well, you said something there that's just so powerful, the idea uh, that the that that what's happening but with QE is not driving CPI inflation, it's driving asset price inflation. Such an important point. I think something uh, that we didn't really think much about before all of this happened. Are we just kind of the, the like the frog in boiling water here? We don't feel it happening because it's happened so slowly. Yeah, I guess it's. There, I think there's some cliche like you don't realize you're part of history when you're sitting there during the history as it happens or whatever. Right. That that didn't. It's like, oh, was that was that Archduke Ferdinand? Did <laughs> fire shots. That's a, yeah, that's one strange. of those things. Um, so you know, like this is historic. Think about it. Like German yields were negative, like two years ago. That's insane. Like the idea of negative rates is completely bonkers. It wasn't even in any textbook, and and now um, we look back and it's only like two years ago. It just it's wild all the the engineering and fine tuning and like you know central planning and all that that's gone on is is crazy and to me it probably has a lot of a lot of negative unintended consequences um like wealth inequality and favoring large right. corporations and many 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 things hey you know um, what's not an exponential chart to the upside average hourly up. earnings all employees no that's more of like a linear yeah yeah, a slight increase in the second derivative, but yeah. nowhere near what we've seen with this rate of increase increasing on asset prices. No, and I think it's interesting now because we have a decent amount of evidence. But like in 08, 09, you know, 100 economists wrote this signed letter saying that QE was going to trigger massive hyperinflation and all that. And so now, now that we know kind of like we have some more evidence, I'm surprised that they don't try to do faster QT and get the balance sheet down because like it's not serving any purpose after the emergency is over, right? Like in an emergency, okay, you can justify it. But once the emergency is over, they just, they stick with it for so long that it, to me, it just feels weirdly unnecessary. Like you can, you can withdraw it as fast as you enacted it if you want, but they don't, they choose not to because of like 
I guess, risk minimization or like fear or just an asymmetry to always want to try to boost things and make things go up. Brent, let me ask you this. Uh, we've got a ton of questions waiting for folks to ask. Are there any other charts that you want to cover before we switch over and start doing questions from Real Vision viewers? Uh, no, no, I think I'm good. Okay, great. First question comes to us from the Real Vision website. It comes to us from Ralph Humphrey. How does trading volume look to Brent? Um, I haven't looked today. Um, so honestly, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I would say, like I can say in FX because that's my thing is that things have kind of, after Silvergate blew up, um, a lot of hedge funds took a lot of pain on the rate side. And so we saw a big decline in volume in everything kind of macro-ish. Um, in terms of equity volume, I'm not sure, but I would say that generally like appetite, risk appetite went down a lot after Silvergate, uh, mostly because rates moved so much that it was like a shock, it was a bar shock, um, and the volumes haven't come back in my products yet. Here's another question from the Real Vision website. It comes to us from Jay and Jay. If the macro outlook looks shaky for stocks, the dollar looks weak. Is it long, precious metals, TLT, and maybe energy stocks? One thing we haven't talked about yet is gold, price of gold trading over $2,000 an ounce on futures on COMEX right now. Give us a little bit of context on that. Yeah, I think that's a good portfolio, what, what was just described there, because you know, if you think about what gold has gone through, like with all these rate hikes and everything, it's pretty mind blowing how well it's performed through, you know, a very aggressive rate hike cycle from the Fed. So to me, then you, you kind of have a decent amount of basis covered there. And you're not necessarily looking for like an outright economic collapse, like or, or a wicked recession like 2001. Uh, there's a lot more scenarios where that that uh, portfolio that was just described will make money versus short stocks i just feel like you know you need very specific regimes to make money it's just it's hard work being short stocks in general um whereas like long bonds and long gold there's just more ways to win in my opinion so yeah i i prefer those um to to being short equities also equities and the economy sometimes are linked and sometimes they, they're not in fact sometimes they're inversely correlated sure yeah you see this perception of uh, significant recession risk and you see the fed start to pour on the spigot with liquidity, you see those two move in opposite directions. Yep. Okay, next question. Maximus Torres from the Real Vision website. Is Brent watching natural gas? Uh, I'm sorry, but no, I don't. I watch I watch crude. Um, generally, nat gas isn't really correlated with my stuff. So um, sorry, but no, I got to say, I don't know anything about natural gas. A perfectly fair answer. <laughs> Nobody can follow everything. But let me ask you this to follow up on your point about crude. Are you looking at WTI? You're looking at Brent, and what is the correlation with your models? Yeah, so crude's really interesting because obviously everyone was super bullish after the war started, and then blip by bit, everyone kind of slowly capitulated. If you look at like the CFTC positioning data and stuff, it got back all the way back down to where it was before the war, um, and so did price. Right, it got back into the 60s, and then on this OPEC thing, I think that's like was really spicy timing by them because. Positioning had been cleaned up and you, you got the big gap from like 75 to 80 on Sunday. And a lot of times those gaps just get filled right away. So the fact that it's holding and then positioning is kind of lighter, I, to me is, is bullish crude now. I think it's like the first time I've been comfortable being bullish crude in a long time because it was just such a popular trade for so long. Um, and so the relationship to, my, to FX is, is generally like some of the big exporters, um, especially Canada. Uh, tends 
Canada's GDP is driven to like say 10, 15% by the price of oil. So you see a pretty much almost like a mechanical relationship at times between oil and Canadian growth and the Canadian dollar, you know, with with some noise around it, but it, it definitely has to be watched if you're trading Canada. So dollar CAD, by the way, understatement yeah. of the hour, spicy timing from OPEC. Spicy timing. Yeah, yeah, spicy timing for the middle finger to the United States, yeah. Geopolitically quite spicy as well. Indeed. Here's a great question from Brian Randall. When is commercial real estate going to start affecting banks? What would the leading indicators be? Boy, that's a great question. A yeah, great that is such um, a big topic right now. And I think the problem with it is that it could just be this super slow bleed. Um, a lot of it, you know, it really doesn't happen until leases get renewed and then you realize, like, I have no tenants. So um, I, I think it's it's important, but it's just such a slow moving thing. And it's so well known that like risks that are slow moving and well known are very, very difficult to trade off of. So to me, like I'm not really factoring it in too much because I think it's real and it's important, but it's almost like a structural thing. And generally, I try to focus more on cyclical things because they tend to move markets more at the margin, whereas like this sort of like hovering, slow bleed, bad thing is just going to be like, it'll be a persistent drag and it'll hurt some banks and, and, you know, there'll be some gates closing on funds and stuff. But to me, I don't think it's going to be something that's, that's really all that tradable or, or that's all that relevant to, to any investment process that doesn't include CRE as, as an asset. Yeah, extremely well said. I have to always hold myself back from going down this rabbit hole because it's out of context for a show about markets. But one of the most fascinating things uh, that I see happening right now are all of the sort of sociological, cultural changes that are happening in the wake of the pandemic. It's almost like a World War II moment. There's a before and there's an after. Uh, you know, the, just the world has changed so dramatically in terms of the way we lead our lives. That's going to have macroeconomic implications. There are going to be implications for markets and for asset prices. I just don't think anybody's figured out exactly what that is. We've got an office sitting, uh, you know, down in Chelsea that's uh, mostly empty. Like yeah, that's same, with, same, same with us. It, yeah, it's amazing if you think about like the idea of bank traders, market makers sitting at home, you know, taking risk and, and making markets for clients that would be like an absolutely impossible concept in 2018. And now it's a thing. It's, it's just mind blowing. Listen, I'll tell a quick anecdote. I found myself last night uh, on at about 11 o'clock on Smith Street in Brooklyn. This is like one of the cool hip places uh, where people under 30, under 40 live, hang out, congregate, lots of great restaurants, lots of great cafes, uh, lots of great clubs and bars. I couldn't find any place to go in and have dinner at 11 p.m. on a Thursday night. It was dead. It was like they rolled up the sidewalks. Funny, that's that's strange. Yeah, I always assumed like, you know, 11 o'clock on a, on a Thursday night, like all the cool kids are out partying. I'm the, you know, the nerd who's home working. <laughs> Turns out that's not the case. People are just not going out the way they used to. Funny, I thought you were gonna say the opposite because um, when I was, in, I was in London, that's really the last time I went out at night, like in that way. And man, London was, like absolutely on fire there was massive lineups everywhere so it, it's it's so interesting I, I do wonder and this is like another thing that's kind of the flip side of the of the office equation it's like people don't go out as much because they're on their phones right if you're a single guy or gal in your 20s you yeah. don't have to go out to a bar and have to deal with asking someone for their phone number you just you just do this all day yeah and i remember that there is a risk of these anecdotes i remember in 2008 people were like oh balthazar is still packed dude and it's like that it was until it wasn't. So um, 
you know, the fact that London is busy, like it's kind of interesting at the margin, but it doesn't necessarily tell you anything because of uh, long and variable lags. <laughs> yeah, and the, and the danger of anecdotes. I'm, I'm thinking maybe I should hop on the six train and go to Balthazar down on Spring Street. We'll yeah, there. yeah. Okay, question back to finance. Uh, this one comes just from Alex Lester from the Real Vision website. Thoughts on the new BOJ leadership? What's the implication for JPY and USD bonds? Boy, this is a great macro question. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important, but um, the market's obsessing over it so much that it's it's been really hard to trade because each time you go into a BOJ meeting, the expectations just go run rampant because it's like the ultimate FOMO trade. Nobody wants to miss like the normalization of a of a central bank that has been easing for 20 years or whatever. So I think UADA will will eventually remove the cap on yields and it's going to be kind of slow. And so the issue really from from the trading side is that if yields are going up and it's pressuring the cap, then it matters if they move the cap, right? But say yields aren't anywhere near the cap and they remove it, then nobody really cares. So the timing of it relative to what global yields and global interest rates are doing, I think is important. But I mean, it's a kicker to be long yen. Um, I think it depends how far they go. I mean, like wages in Japan are, are very high uh, by some measures and wage negotiations that in March were, were very strong. So I do think it's like a kicker for say being short dollar yen. But the problem is that you, you need the dollar side to cooperate or it's not going to work. So like, yeah, it's it's important. But in the end, dollar yen is still going to generally be a dollar. And then the yen thing will be like this sort of kicker that happens or that can help you. And and I think it's meaningful. Um, the first meeting from UADA is in April and at, at the end, towards the end of the month. So that that meeting will be extremely interesting. Here's a great question from Stephen Birchfield from the Real Vision website. Uh, wage growth for March was up 6.4%, up from 6.0%. What do you think the Fed terminal rate will need to be. It's an interesting question because we were just talking about wage growth from the sort of the longer perspective. Uh, this is a much more tactical question. Uh, and secondly, we should say, obviously, federal funds target rate 475 to 500 right now. Uh, any thoughts on the terminal rate where that stops? Yeah, I think we're close. I think just that Silvergate probably is not the the last naked swimmer or the only cockroach or whatever you want to whatever you want to say. So to me, I think they're in the zone where it's kind of restrictive and each subsequent hike will probably trigger some more angst. And and also, I mean, I think the economy is slowing. So to me, I think terminal would be probably 525 or five, maybe five and a half. Um, I think wage growth will probably be one of the last things to go back down um, simply because there's been a shortage of workers. So it was kind of the last thing to go up and it'll be the last thing to go down. So I, I think the, there will be higher frequency things that you can look at like claims, um, initial claims, or even like non-farm payrolls. That an unemployment rate will probably all move before wages. So I'm not as big on watching wages in real time because I feel like they're kind of laggy. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that's right in line with uh, what Fed President John Williams is saying at 525. Here's a question from TrillionX from YouTube. Uh, TrillionX is obviously watching the data closely. Brent, how do you explain that after disappointing retail sales, the odds of a rate hike in May has increased to 80%? Is it because the banking crisis has ended. Great question. This sort of seemingly paradoxical relationship. Yeah, so that's a great, a lot of people were asking that today. I think you have to look at everything that happened today and retail sales was probably number three in terms of importance. So I think the banks being fine was number two and then Waller being so hawkish was probably number one. 
Um, and also, to be fair, going into retail sales because of the credit card data, uh, people were kind of expecting something weak. And then if you actually break it down below the headline, some of these, like the core, which is the, or sorry, the control group, which is the input into GDP, was actually stronger than expected. So some of the details in retail sales were were not as bad as as pretty pretty pessimistic expectations. So I think, but it, the the real answer is that I think retail sales got trumped um, by the banks and then by Waller after that. Okay, here's a great question that comes to us um, from an Anaimo trader, someone who's joined us on many of our Twitter spaces. Question, what are the serious mistakes you are seeing investors make in today's tricky investing climate? Well, that's a great question. I may be out of a job soon. Uh, I think the, the most expensive mistake that people have made generally over the years is being too bearish equities and buying S&P puts that don't, that are impossible to monetize. So... Um, like even in 2022, when stocks went down, it was hard to make money on S&P puts because vol wasn't really that crazy. So I think like a persistent negative bias, even though like obviously negativity can be correct at times and I'm not a permable either, but I think a, a persistent negative bias is probably the most expensive mistake that people make because it, it's just stocks tend to trend higher, not all the time, but like it's it's so easy to get sucked into like negativity always sounds smarter. For example, um, yes. like you go on Twitter, you can always find really smart reasons to be bearish. Um, and so I think negativity sells and it penetrates the the psyche of a lot of people. Yeah. And it kind of like always feels like it makes more sense, right? If you look around, like being negative sort of feels like the right play, but it, to me, like some kind of rational optimism is the better metagame where like, you don't just commit to always being bullish, but you also are, very skeptical of the bearish hypothesis most of the time. Boy, that's such an important point. We've talked about a lot of things at the sort of the strategic level, but that's a great grand strategic takeaway. I've fallen victim to that myself. I think many people have. I mean, me too, of course. Yeah, it's it always sounds like the smarter argument, smarter, right? In double quotes to to, to be negative. And look, we saw this. I, I mean, I remember this in 2008. Uh, people getting caught up, I think, in their in their political biases, right? This yep. idea of like, well, you know, what the Fed is doing right now is just terrible. This isn't the way that markets are supposed to work. And they and people who went short got their faces ripped off. Sure, I mean, people, a lot of people were short from like 2010 to 2016, basically, like off and on. Um, and most of the time, it kind of made sense at various points. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. It's just it's hard to make money being short too. Like it's it's just such a different game. So. Yeah. Um, you know, you can always hang out in cash at 5%. There's there's nothing, you know, to be ashamed of there or be long TLT or whatever, like the, the initial portfolio question. Um, but generally being short, you have to have really good timing and you have to know what you're doing and you have to risk manage and stop out if you're wrong. And that's, you know, that's something that sometimes people have trouble doing. Yeah. And for those folks who are uh, secularly short uh, from, say, uh, 07 uh, until the present, I hope I hope they bought a nice place in Boca. Uh, I hope things are well for them, but uh, obviously the trade did not work out. All right, everybody, I waited four, I, I waited a, a full 58 minutes to 4.58 to ask this question. Uh, so we didn't do too much crypto, but this is a great question. It comes to us from Laurent LeCue. Uh, any views on crypto, Brent? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting how well it's trading. Um, it's kind of decoupled from the NASDAQ and, and from yields a little bit in the last couple of days. Although I would say still that sometimes like crypto just doesn't get the macro memo right away and it's like it doesn't react to the macro stuff right away. 
So like super micro, I'd be a little bit, I, I'd be worried about a, a correction. But, uh, you know, overall, I think it's very slowly kind of taking its take, like finding its role as another hedge for loose monetary policy. So mm. when the market sniffs out that the Fed's going to be looser, um, crypto benefits, it's the highest beta, most volatile way to bet on loose monetary policy. And I, I think it'll continue to be a, a good tool for that. Um, and that's kind of what it's been doing now. However, I will say, though, if if Waller is right and the economy is OK and yields go up much more from here, I think that's going to hurt crypto again. You know, we'll see another correction. So to me, it's like structurally the world is very loose, but then there's these cycles of tightness. And so when things start getting feeling tight, that's when crypto gets hit. But in the long run, you just keep buying dips. Yeah, and I promise I got the memo. I'm not going to turn Real Vision Daily Briefing into Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. We're going to cover macro uh, and traditional financial. Uh, you guys got a whole product for that, yeah. Yeah, we do. If you want to come geek out with me uh, every uh, every weekday at noon, we're talking about exactly uh, these topics in a lot of detail uh, and obviously talking about macro and TradFi on this show. Uh, Brent, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed this one. I think it was perfect one for the long Friday formula, format. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave us with. Well, the, I think now we're going to get into a bit of a boring period because the, all the data for April basically came out. So I would say the risk for like the next few weeks, next month is just that we keep on squeezing in equities just because it could be the path of least resistance until you get some actual bad news, um, which is probably coming in the summer or in the fall. Yeah. Any Anything else that you'd like uh, to leave us with? No, that's it. Really enjoy the sunshine. Enjoy the sunshine. It's like 70. We were talking about this uh, earlier. It's a beautiful day here in New York City. Really appreciate you joining us. Fantastic conversation. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show, everybody. Uh, thanks again for watching. I hope you enjoyed this extended version of the Real Vision Daily Briefing. And thank you again for being a member. We really appreciate it. Have a great weekend, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.